Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 113. This cast is always sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com who has partnered with us to give away free $25 gift certificates. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more and a sweet 25% buy list bonus, CoolStuffInc.com is a store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. Unfortunately, Jim is busy with his bachelor party this week, so that means you're going to get a duo cast of Ed and I, which in the past has uh, proven to be either an amazing success or total failure. So we'll see which way it comes out this week. Ed, how are you doing this week, bud? Good, good. Uh, came off GP Richmond, so that was a long week. Yeah, so, you want to talk about that? Did it uh, make your pockets any richer, man, or was it, uh, was it a bad one? Uh, as a whole, like it was pretty bad for uh, the vendors. There were just way too many vendors there. The total count was, uh, I think, I believe it was sixteen vendors. Um, and, like, and that's after some people had backed out. So originally there would have been more. Um, but the show was a disaster. There were like eight hundred people for each event between Legacy and Standard, which is a pretty poor turnout for Legacy for one. Um, but I think it's more the how bad the timing was um it was Labor Day weekend so i imagine we probably a lot of people probably get attrition to i would rather like take an actual vacation rather than you know go to richmond virginia um there was also dragon con that was in atlanta this weekend that's like a pretty popular place for a lot of people to go uh mainly that's just a bigger con it's in a better city it's probably like more central to a lot of people i guess um like there was also PAX West, uh, it, probably not many people who who would have come out of their choice between PAX West and Richmond. I imagine unless like except for like the most like diehard legacy players, most people would rather just go to PAX West and check out like the new stuff that they spoiled. Wizards always does kind of their big uh, preview session, I guess, as it were, for the fall set with that. And if like if real realistically again, if people were close that it was just much, much better for them to go to whatever's closer to them, like PAX West, or even stay at home rather than make the trip out to Richmond. And because Richmond is such it's such a small regional airport, it's just so expensive to fly to. So unless, like, that that probably deterred a lot of people as well, whereas someplace like Seattle, you know, it's a major hub. Uh, if people booked at the right time, people could come at, could travel on cheap, but there there's just no way to travel cheaply to Richmond, short of, like, if you were somewhere on the eastern seaboard and you're, you're driving down for it. Yeah, a lot of my Missouri customers drove to Richmond. It's about a 10-hour drive. I elected along with some other people to fly in, and uh, we all had our flights canceled. Um, and they actually gave us uh, credit, which normally doesn't happen on American. So we were pretty happy about it. Overall, though, I'm sad I missed out on vendors having extra money and not knowing what to do with it except buying my stuff. Um, yeah, other like, than... Sorry, what, if you... If you're one of the players, like a lot of players definitely did well, mainly because vendors were just so desperate to buy like anything that they were more than happy to like, like pay above what their like list price would have been, or they were willing to like match top buy list or whatever, just to get some piece of action. Cause a lot of them, like, especially if their overhead is so high, if they're making any money at all, that's much better than, than just like taking their money back with them and making no money. Right. And uh, this weekend we have GP Detroit. I know you will be there. I know Douglas Johnson, who was originally going to come on yesterday, um, will also be there. I think, who are you working for this weekend? I'll be with Tails, as usual. And Doug will be with 95. So if you guys want to say hi to them, feel free to stop by and show Ed your support. Um, Hong Kong is the week after that. Uh, Tickets are $700 round trip to an Asian GP. That is insane. Um, believe it or not, it's actually not that insane. Uh, it's like Hong Kong is a very, very like major hub, like in yeah. terms of Southeast Asia for commerce of all varieties, not just magic, obviously. Um, but it's also like a reasonably popular like tourist destination, mainly because people can't like fly directly to Macau, or rather, it's prohibitively expensive to fly to Macau. Usually, it's people just take the people just fly to Hong Kong and then take the ferry over. Uh, so, like, in addition to like just commerce, like tourism, it makes it, it's actually very, very cheap to fly. Um, yeah, but not all of us live in hub cities at these these grand states with these amazing airports. Ed, you know that for me, like, that's insane. So, right, like seven dollars, seven hundred dollars is pretty good. I remember last year when I flew um, 
in, from uh, New York in October. Yeah, New York yeah, to Hong Kong round trip was like five hundred and sixty. Yeah, see, something. that's the difference is you don't have to connect to an actual airport to get to Hong Kong. You just go. So, right. Um, yeah, uh, but speaking of things that will also cost $700, do you want to get into the new Masterpiece Series Planeswalkers that have amazing from-the-vault foiling and can only be sold to U.S. residents and maybe Canadian residents? Uh, yeah, I think like uh, we had a few viewers talk about this, so we'll just kind of like uh, touch on all of it at once. Um, I think that part is fine. I, like, I, don't, I don't mind that it's something that's exclusive, that's sold, my biggest problem is that Hasbro, they have other, I guess Hasbro doesn't, but what, I guess there's no Watsy stores, so there's no good way for them to do this. But making it only available to U.S. and uh, Canadian residents feels pretty bad, especially since Canada, they already have to, they're going to have to pay like a tariff on top, I believe. 10%. Yeah, 10% on top. Um, the price isn't like, isn't terrible, realistically. Like it's a rare, it's a novelty item. Anything that is, Considered like a luxury, for example, like these masterpieces, right? No one is being restricted from playing. You can still open the uh, Ralzeric. What was it? Is it Viceroy? I think that's the name. Like you can still open those in normal packs. Viceroy. Like, uh, sure. If you're, if you're from Missouri, then you can say, then you can Vicar say it's Vicaroy. Um, Vicawa. Sommelier. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Like no one's being priced out playing. It, the way they present it is like pretty goofy. Um, like it's obviously just gonna be like very very expensive for people overseas. I was, it's one thing to have like you know the San Diego Comic Con Planeswalkers mainly because it's a con exclusive. It rewards people for actually going in and like actually buying those sets or whatever. But when you have something like a product like this and you're basically shutting off most of the world from being able to buy it, even though like the U.S. is your biggest demographic, um, it feels really bad for like Europeans like like Southeast Asia, China, Japan, Australia, like South America, all these places that they just don't have access because they just don't live in the U.S. So you're going to have problems where um, like the arbitrage opportunity would be very good, right? Like Japan is just going to have no copies. They will want a ton of them. Same with like Europe. Like these types of things are very, very popular abroad. Um, and it just feels – it definitely feels like a big sock in the face um, from that aspect. The fact that it's $250 isn't something that I'm quite so bothered about. Um, and I actually think it's slightly better that it's um, that it's actually uh, distributed through this channel rather than going through like local game stores. How dare um, you? How like, dare you? I I do see the argument where like this is like you know the from the vault type thing where stores got like a little like bonus as it were uh, for like these types of products that they could buy and then obviously charge above MSRP as kind of a way for wizards to like push uh push game store sales a little bit um from that avenue but uh i just feel like this is exactly the type of product that they don't want in the hands of lgs's mainly because you're just going to have price gouging on a massive level or you're just gonna have people who rather than put them up for sale uh you, they just open up all the planeswalkers and then ship them overseas or something yep. um so from from that perspective i'm okay with it being through the store uh, there's obviously problems with that. I don't have any faith that the website doesn't go down in the first like like five minutes of this being available. As soon as there's it goes live, max of two instead of one. Right, right. So it depends on how like available this is. Like if they uh, like obviously there's no data on like from the vaults or wherever how many are out there. Right, if they produce like I don't know a million of these, which is uh, which is like probably like a staggeringly low number for today, like. 500,000 people having a lot of these considering how big magic is, is really not a lot if you consider, especially if you consider how many of these are going to be bought for the purpose of resale rather than people actually opening them to draft them or whatever. So, so Evan Irwin had a great take on this. He uh, put out a poll that said, how many of these do you think are going to be produced? And even if there's only 10,000 copies produced, that is still uh, $2.5 million dollars of direct cash infusion directly into Hasbro, which makes it very likely that they will do something like this again, because even if they only do 10,000 as a test run, it's still going to sell out. There's still 5,000 people located. It, I mean, there's like more, there's more than 5,000 people in, in the US on like the MTG finance subreddit alone that could probably buy two copies each to buy this out. So this is basically a guaranteed uh, 
cash thing that you're going to see Hasbro do more of in the future, which is why I don't think they included Jason Loyana because they want to do that in the future to have another one of these. Yep. Like I, I do think it's like, sorry to cut you off there. I think it's definitely a different way to like introduce masterpieces, for example. Um, I think this is probably like slightly preferable to, um, uh, what they did in the past where it's like you get one every like three boxes or something, uh, mainly because, uh, it, it's relatively static, uh, probably because they can control exactly how many are out there. And again, because it's a luxury item, it doesn't feel like you have to buy this. It's obviously meant like, it's like, it'd be a great Christmas gift. Um, obviously like they're trying to like push the draft experience, etc. but we'll see how it pans out. Yeah, and it's definitely going to hurt for the European and Japan customers, though this may be the easiest arbitrage opportunity if you have the capital and the out to make money on this. Like, if you're already planning on, like, shipping stuff overseas or going to a foreign GP, or, like, you have a connection where, like, they ship you cards on MKM, this could be, like, your way to start making the money flow the other way. So it's just something to keep in mind. The other thing I didn't realize, because there's a lot of people know we record this podcast live, is there's a lot of European watchers. So uh, congrats on your first live um, cartel episode where uh, you are always sleeping when we normally record this. The other live stream comments are basically saying, holy crap, Ed is awake. So uh, maybe we should record more during the day. Uh, believe it or not, like I'm actually usually awake between like six, like six to seven a.m. So, mm. allegedly, I, no, not allegedly. I'm actually awake <laughs> early in the morning. But uh, yeah, um, so it's uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, the SDCC stuff as well. Um, I still don't know if I want to sell my other two copies that I have because right now it's like double uh, what it costs to get them in online, but I, I don't know how I feel about these in the long term. And I feel like a lot of people are doing that with their SDCC sets right now. It's like, do I lock in the instant profit and move on? Or like, is it worth sitting on? And I don't think these appreciate as much as other stuff that's come out in the past, but it, it's always tempting to just take the money and run. So it's just, uh, that's like one of the main questions our viewers had emailed us this week on uh, what to do with SDCC sets yep and i guess one last point on the uh, masterpieces thing i guess it also kind of creates like this interesting dilemma i guess like there's relatively no uh costs like there's almost no downside to buying these right like if you're one of those people who like who actually wants these as like a nifty way to like pimp out your cube or like you have a way to solve these ingredients checks great but like the secondary market on these is going to stay high not just on them sealed obviously there will be people who like want the sealed, uh, the sealed, uh, the sealed box because again it makes like a, for a great Christmas gift. If you want to sit on this, right? There are some people who have sealed SDCC, SDCC sets, etc. Um, but like the people who do crack them, right? Like if you only want like three of the eight planeswalkers, you're probably going to be able to turn over the five remaining ones you don't want for a very healthy amount, and th like that alone will probably cover. You know the majority of your box like if the, you sell like the five worst ones right and we say they're like 30 dollars a piece which is kind of the floor on what most masterpieces are nowadays and most masterpieces are considerably worse than planeswalkers like if they're at 30 dollars um like if they're at 30 dollars a piece right you sell five of them that's 150 dollars is 100 dollars for you to get the draft packs and ability to draft or if you just decide to open packs or whatever right that's like 24 packs in itself plus the three planeswalkers that you want to be keeping for yourself that you're playing with anyways, right? That seems pretty much like a no-brainer for people, like, who are who, who don't, like, necessarily, who are, like, slightly more conscious of the money they have to spend, but they still want to, like, get in on some of these at probably, like, a reasonable cost because I imagine, uh, again, it depends on the print run, depends on, like, how it plays out, but I imagine, like, most of these planeswalkers probably aren't going to be less than, like, 40 to $50 dollars. Like Lily on Last Hope, like that. I'm, I have a hard time believing that one won't be like in the seventy to eighty dollar range. Especially when you look at the Japanese buy prices on that card normally. Right, right. Same with like, uh, I can't remember all of them, but like, like Tezra, Age of Bolas, like that I foil. Can't count to eight guys. He just admitted it. Uh, that like uh, Tezra alone is uh, like the foil is I think like fifty or sixty dollars. Age of yep. Bolas, right. Like, that's obviously a very popular one. That card sees fringe legacy play, but that's a popular one. And, like, Demir, like, 
most like Grixis artifacts type strategies. Uh, like Elspeth Nidorant has always been like a very popular one, especially the foil is so expensive because they haven't existed since Mar Masters 2013. Um, like these are all like naturally just very expensive cards themselves. And I think there's like, it's really interesting to see how this plays out for Wizards mainly because I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to do things right. But it's just kind of a matter of, uh, it, it's just it, we we just have to wait to see how it plays out and see like what they choose to do in the future regarding masterpieces because obviously this is like a whole new thing for them. And the one thing I want to preface this with, since Jim isn't here to ground us this week, that's like the good thing about having Jim on every week is he keeps us sane. Not all of our listeners have two hundred and fifty dollars to put on a product and like try and flip or like uh, put it away for a while. Um, that maybe that may, especially with a lot of the questions viewers have asked in the past, be a significant amount of the money that they want to put into magic. And you should stick with Ed's philosophy that there will always be a better thing to come along. So even though we're saying that this may be guaranteed money or like Hasbro might do something wrong. So if your order gets filled, like you're good uh, as far as like you'll make a hundred bucks off of it. You you don't have to like sell part of your collection to like be able to purchase this. Um there's a there's always going to be greener pastures out there. You can always make money off the next thing that comes along. So basically, what we're saying is, if this represents a small part of your overall magic investing budget, go for it. As long as you can get one, and you know your outs, or you're like you know your time frame for it. But we're not expecting every single listener to um, buy two of these because that would be the entire print run of the set, and then we'd get yelled at online. So. Just uh, stay a little grounded when you're listening to the cast this week because uh, Ed is out there spending God knows how much money on magic cards every week and not everybody can afford to do that. Um, moving on though, you were talking about Demir and I think we should get into Guilds of Ravnica, which um, as far as I can tell is not a pretty grueling set. I think that's the next one, but uh, we'll see how that pans out. We got the pre-release kit info. We have Shocklands reprinted. I lost a lot of money on that. Um, and by a lot, I just mean like I bought a collection of four of everything in modern, including uh, Gate Crash, Return of Ravnica, OG Rav, etc. And I didn't get rid of the shocks in time. Um, but the original ones are actually still holding their value. I've been able to move those. I just took a bath on the 40 reprints of Shocklands. Ed, what do you want to talk about from Guilds of Ravnica this week with the new mechanics and if anything's broken? Uh, nothing seems like like two out of control yeah obviously it's like kind of a matter of looking back to um like we talked about this in the past right like if you're looking to buy the standard you want to be buying your your ixon block and like dominaria core core uh 19 cards right now mainly because the market's kind of settled on them like core 19 everything is pretty much down everything is probably bottoming out i don't know how much more like these cards can go down especially since people realistically aren't opening core 2019 anymore. Um, in terms of mechanics, right, like Demir is one of those things where it's like, you know, they have the graveyard strategies. Uh, what, what What is that mechanic that uh, you look at the top X and it's like the scry slash dump into your graveyard? Correct. And there's a card I actually have as pick of the week for that this week. It's Surveil. Uh, you can scry and put it in the graveyard, but I'll save. I went pretty deep today on a, on a card that combos well with that mechanic. So as long as Ed doesn't spoil my pick of the week again, we are... Uh, we good. Oh, I'm, I'm going to think about this for the rest of the cast. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm just going to remove you from the call so that you can't call it. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's some fun stuff that's getting spoiled. Um, Shocklands, I mean, we're going to make so much money off of this. Even if they never return to even half of their previous highs, the fact that there's always customers for casual or competitive looking for Shocklands means that it's basically guaranteed money as long as you buy in at the right price. And it and it's probably like starts to like probably drive demand, even if it's super small for things like the expedition and even the original. Like you said, the originals haven't really lost value. Um, like there will be always be the people who you know they harken back to like two thousand. God, when was Ravnica out? Like two thousand four, two thousand two thousand and eight. It's when you turned forty five, but I think it was actually two thousand and eight or three, one of the two. Was it 2004? The last pro, the last event in St. Louis for a Grand Prix was Return to Ravnica and then Cold Snap. So, yeah. I'm going to look okay. this up real fast while you're talking about uh, guilds. Yeah, I want to say, like, the original Ravnica was, like, 2004, 2005. 
it's really, really hard to find those like in nice shape. A lot of them have just been like destroyed. They're like stashed away in cubes. Uh, they've been signed mainly because Rob Alexander did all of them. The art looks 2005, sweet. October. Yeah, but like he signed a lot of them. There will always be a market for those. It wouldn't surprise me if like the expeditions probably see a slight bump in demand. And it's just kind of like the cool way to foil them. Obviously, there's like, you know, you can get three different foilings now between uh, the original Ravnica, Return to Ravnica block, and then uh, now Kills of Ravnica. Um, but again, like with how short the supply is on some of uh, like the expeditions, like I imagine shops will probably see a slight bump again. It'll probably be small. But like, if you go and you look at the supply of them, there really aren't that many of some of these expeditions out there. Because um, Ed owns them all, allegedly. Um, but like, in terms of like the mechanics themselves, it'll be kind of interesting to see how it plays out, especially if how it'll work with um, Ixlon block. I know like Ixlon was kind of like the big like tribal block that they tried to push, um, and a lot of that was kind of stifled by. Just how powerful like Kaladesh block was, especially with, like mono red, the energy mechanic, etc. But um, we'll have to see if there's like any sort of um, like creature types. Like Merfolk is one of the ones that have. It feels like it's kind of on the edge of being competitive. We'll have to see if it's good enough to actually break through. There's a lot of tools, but it wouldn't surprise me if like they spoiled like like one or two good Merfolk. Like realistically, like one Merfolk is probably enough to put over the edge. Or if there's like some sort of like synergy that works with uh, like Simic or like even vampires or something. If there's, I don't know if there's vampires in Orzov. There may be, I have no idea. But like it feels like a lot of these are pretty close to working. And it would surprise me if they start spoiling things that have a very, very obvious synergy with, uh, with like excellent block cards or something and it causes those cards to go up. Um, like in the coming days, because that's usually how things work with kind of like the new standard. People just want to know how they interact because you aren't making your money by pre-ordering Guilds of Ravka. You're making your money by getting, by parking it in like Ixlon Block or whatever and finding these cards are underpriced that won't be underpriced in, you know, three weeks or something when the full set comes out and people are looking to brew with the new standard. I think as usual, you're right on top of it. I'm really interested to see what Simic brings to the table. Um, because we have so many powerful Simic cards from Ixalan Block and Dominaria. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, I don't think the excitement for this set is as high as it was when Returner Ravnica came out, um, which may... I think a lot of players are just done with Standard after getting just blown apart after the, over the last, what, five years now? Like, it's just been miserable for five years of Standard or so since Returner Ravnica. Um so they're like trying to do the whole thing with Shocklands and Checklands have the same mana base. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens as far as like turnout for standard events because having 700 people at GP Providence for standard and then 800 people at Richmond is like atrocious numbers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yep. All right, you want to get into our viewer questions because unlike last week, we have infinite amount of questions to go through this week. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of good ones. Thought that uh, I'll try and respond to all these, but I didn't he realize there's like he always says he will, and he never does. I respond like some amount of the time. It depends on how long I get stuck in the airport, I guess. So, mm. all right, so we're gonna go through some questions that are not credit winners of the week, but just stuff we're gonna touch on real fast because um, we're gonna we're gonna make this an information filled episode. All right, Tony Ta or Mina. Butchered as usual says, so I know you've talked about sign cards before, but what does the cast think about signatures from artists who have passed away? Wondering how to gauge this. And is it ever something you'd pick up if it was a good deal that you saw? So sign cards, I'd already talked about that. Rob Alexander is basically chasing players around the room, trying to sign their cards. But uh, are there any specific artists that you see and you pick them up if it's a good deal? Um, not particularly, mainly because I just don't want to have to deal with like, um, like trying to make note like this card is signed, like there should be a premium on this, etc. Right? I don't want to, have to deal with questions like, oh, why is this like I see brainstorm like a hundred dollars, which, which is roughly like the market pr price for like Chris Rush uh, signed brainstorms now. Right? I don't want to have to answer those questions. Um, I do acknowledge that there's value, like the Quentin Hoover uh, signatures, like, like they're pretty expensive. Um, 
especially like on a lot of these artists, because you have cards that are already rare um, on top of a, on top of a signature uh, from someone who who won't be signing anymore. Um, it feels like it should be a perfect storm for these cards to be very expensive, but it just feels like your market for those is so small that I generally don't bother. Like that being said, I'm actually in the market for um, the Chris Rush Force from like uh, I'm looking for beta ones. Oh, all the- I have a stack of 100 alpha Chris Rush signed for us. Uh, I want beta ones, mainly because yeah. there'll be ones I'll play with. And I specifically want the one that has the darker print, the one mm-hmm. that wasn't included in alpha. Yeah. Um, but like, I'm like not super keen on shelling out like 50 to $70 for them. But like, I just don't like, obviously they're not going to get cheaper. I don't really see another way to get them. So Quentin Hoover actually grew up an hour and a half from where one of my places is located. So we actually have a lot of that stuff come through. Um, notably someone brought in like a long box of sign cards and it was almost all Quentin Hoover. Uh, what I actually ended up doing was, uh, one of his childhood friends is actually one of the biggest signature collectors out there on the market. If you look at Facebook and I sold them to him for like a bulk deal and then ended up paying the guy way more money than I thought it was going to be. Um, on a lot of Quentin Hoover cards, his signature is automatically like 30 to $40 more. And then on stuff like wrath of God, it's really iconic. Or Earthbind, uh, I had like a couple of the only beta Earthbinds signed by him in a specific color that he's ever done. Um, so I was, I got a nice chunk of change, and then I passed it on to the guy that sold it to me, rather than you know just take him to the cleaners. Um, so I, I get a lot of Quentin Hoover stuff. It's sort of like what Jason Alt was talking about on BSB, where alternate fourth edition was also in the Midwest, so you get a lot more of that in the Midwest. Um, Chris Rush stuff is always going to be money. It, it is hard to move. I've been sitting on like Rush sign lightning bolts and two brainstorms because they're not play sets forever because uh, my EDH players bought some of them and then my competitive players only want to buy a play set. So it takes a while to move those. Um, but Quentin Hoover is probably the hottest. Una Fricker who did Wasteland is another big one. If you guys have um, any questions about sign cards, we did have Mike Lineman on to discuss it last year where he talked about uh, exactly which specific artist signatures are worth more than normal, which ones don't sign anymore and which artists are in bad health. And like, you should get signed sooner rather than later. And you can always reach out to him on Twitter at Vorthos Mike, uh, for like the full list because he, he updates it pretty often. Uh, one thing to note about signatures, um, especially from like Chris Rush, Quinn Hoover, et cetera. Um, I believe there's a thread somewhere where people actually discuss fake signatures um yeah that's the thing yeah fake signatures like on chris rush cards i think that was the one that was most like a certain lotus on ebay uh yes there's also that there's also like we've even had like a few relatively mundane ones like i've seen fake uh uh, signatures on lightning bolts and brainstorms um if you are in the market for them and you don't own them already and you see them at gp or something um if you are, if you know who Jeff uh, Ferreira is, he's uh he used to be Chris Rush's agent. He now works with like Mark Poole. Um, take a moment, one like say hi to him. Like he's a super super cool dude. Um, like I've definitely like bought stuff from them before, mainly because I'm a fan of like uh like the side basic stuff that the artist does. Um, and Jeff is just a very cool dude in general. Um, whenever I see a signature that I'm not sure about, I usually send him a picture and have him verify. If you if you see these at GP, you can usually have him verify signature as well. He's worked with Chris for a very very long time. Um, make just make sure like you get what you like, you get what you're paying for, and you're actually getting a real signature. Um, there are a few odd ones. Uh, I think a little bit after a little bit after he passed away, there was a period where uh, they would continue to just stamp his signature. It was made it was like a rubber stamp. Uh, you should, like make sure like one the stamp is good and like that's actually what it looked like, and two like. Make sure that you're not buying something that was, you know, fraudulently signed by someone trying to imitate it and then like turn a quick buck on it. Um, yep. Yeah. So it like if you're at a GP and that happens and Mark Poole's there, Jeff would you will usually be there with him as well. And again, he, I'm sure he's more. I, in my case, like he's always been happy to answer my questions. I imagine if you bring something up and you just want them to verify the authenticity, I'm sure he'd be more than happy to do that. Or you especially obvious, since yeah. Yeah, especially since like usually they aren't cheap. Like brainstorms, like pushing hundred dollars. Like same with like lightning bolts, etc. But obviously, not we understand that not all of our viewers can attend grand prix and talk to vendors and all that. So we're moving on to our next question because our lightning round took like fifteen minutes for signature finance because classic Grandpa Ed rambling about the war. Brian Russell asks, "This is a more practical question. 
I have a large collection of cards that are fairly disorganized. Do you have any tips or suggestions for organizing and storing your collection? Are there any products you recommend to organize and store your collection? All right, Ed, knock it out in five minutes or less. Uh, I would just go by just like, like set sort everything and then just put everything alphabetically. Um, if you get to a point where you own, I have no idea how many cards you own, but like let's, if you get to a point where you own like half a million cards or something, you can like first I'd probably start out small, just get like a one row box, uh, slice the top off and then just stand your cards up in the box uh, that and put them alphabetically or lay them down if you want to be able to close your boxes. Um, and then eventually like, you know, you'll get to a point where you have so much stuff. Um, you'll kind of start to expand to like two rows, three rows, four rows, et cetera. Um, beyond that, in terms of storing, uh, if you're looking at this from like a business perspective, you want to make sure like the room is like, you have like a dehumidifier running, you control the, um, how much moisture there is in the air, mainly because that will cause damage to the cards, especially over a very, very long period of time. Um, if you can keep your boxes closed or if you're somewhere like, or if you do have a dehumidifier running, it's fine to keep it open, but you just want to be careful of like over a very, very long period of time, uh, there will be damage to your cards. Don't keep them like in the basement or something. One, because if there's a flood or something, then your cards are going to get wrecked uh, in the basement. Uh, just make sure like, also don't keep them on the floor. Again, in the event of flooding, uh, you want to keep it like on a U-line rack or like some sort of shelf that's at least a few inches off the ground. That way you can kind of insulate yourself uh, from like the level zero of like floods, like however small maybe, maybe you don't have floods in your area. I'm not sure. Um, beyond that, like if you're just operating on a small level, do what makes sense to you. If you're like small enough, realistically, you can also like alphabetize everything. Um, I just shove all my stuff in boxes and have to like dig every time I look for something because disorganized, but find what works for you and just kind of keep track of it it's easier to do when you're small rather than like if you have a million cards it's just gonna take you forever and you're just not gonna want to deal with it so there's two ways either put aside all of your weekends for the foreseeable future and catch up on netflix while you sort boxes and boxes of cards for a month or just give up and buy less at auto a vendor and then be happy that you have space in your place again that seems to be like the two main ways like you if um, if you're interested in extracting as much value out of your collection as possible and you have the time to do it, definitely go ahead and organize it. But don't like try and marathon it in a week because you'll just burn out like most people tend to do and then they give up. Like if you set aside like two or three hours every weekend and like watch Netflix and like start organizing, it's a lot more bearable. I have a lot of friends that like watch baseball games or hockey games because the pacing specifically in baseball is slow. And they organize and then they only look up when like there's a play happening and it makes them feel a little less insane when they're doing it. Um, if you just have like infinite amount of one to five dollar cards that are just hanging out in boxes, like pull on them out, buy list them and like move on with life and like reinvest the capital. Because odds are if you have a bunch of one to five dollar cards sitting around in boxes that you haven't touched, you've had them for years and they've appreciated already. So. That would be my advice. Uh, it's what's your time worth, and like, do you do you want to get rid of it, or do you want to um, uh, make your collection like perfect for if Timmy or whatever needs like a random common from uh, Guildbacked, and then you like you're like, aha, I have it, pulled it out, boom, fifty cents, whatever. So that's uh, those are the ways. It's pretty cut and dry. A lot of people either have too much time for this game, and they value their time uh, not enough or they don't have any time and yeah, you meet both people. So uh, thanks for that question. You want to go into our credit winner of the weekend? Sounds good. All right. Well, that's not a question, uh, but Joshua Hall says no question this week, but I wanted to say thanks for the advice on getting out of sealed product to save space. Great idea. I agree with you that it is easier to sell a single card than a whole box. Shipping is always a concern on sealed boxes. Thanks, as always, for the great tips. That is not our question of the week. I'm just throwing it out there as a shout-out to you. Credit winner of the week is Dana Williams. Dana asks, hey, crew, what do you think about how Wizards is handled standard as of late? It seems like most players are moving away, and not only because we are approaching a stale and solved format. With so many bannings of standard cards and players not seeming to enjoy the format, do you think that they are exploring other options as a flagstaff for selling new product? like a new Frontier-esque format. 
I thought that they had hired former pros to specifically look at and test the standard format. I've never played Brawl, but would be more willing to try it once Guilds of Ravnica comes out over standard. Thanks, Dana. Uh, I think there's like a lot to break down in that. I think the first thing is is uh, like the state of standard over the past, like you know, in your case, you said like five years or whatever. Um, like I've I I've always been a fan of standard. I think it's one of those things where even though it does get solved quickly, you, you know, we've had you know, we can go back and just think like, you know, right now, like Black Red is kind of the boogeyman before that was Team or Energy. If we go back, we had, I don't remember what we had. Like there's one when we Copy had like- Copycat, Etherworks, Mardu Vehicles. Before right. that, we had like, Siege Rhino. Before that, we had Just Guy Black. Before that, we had Rally. Before that, we had, yeah, I can keep going. Right, right. Like Green White Token. Like these are all the decks. Like in my mind- I think people are just looking for something to complain about, mainly because like that's the kind of nature of standard. You have a very, very small card pool. It's very, very easy to solve the format. You don't have a lot of moving pieces. So naturally, you just have a simpler format, for lack of a better word. Like, I understand this irks people. Um, I know, like, you know, if you've been around for a while, you remember when Wizards tried to do the uh, the 18-month rotation rather than the two-year rotation. That led to like a kind of a separate set of issues. Um, in terms of like, is like a new format the answer? I don't think like Brawl or like Frontier's answer. It wouldn't surprise me like if they are working on something like Frontier. I imagine that's probably like one or two years away. Um, as in terms of Brawl, like it's something new, it's something that I think they were just trying to see if it would actually catch people's attention. It obviously did. It kind of feels like Brawls just fell flat on its face um, until they do something like, I don't know, if they did something ridiculous, like make like a Brawl Grand Prix or something. Um, I just don't think like it'll naturally catch on. Uh, like, I don't think Modern would be where it is today if they if they had kind of set Modern up differently. Um, if anywhere you were playing back in like 2012, the way they basically announced Modern was... This is modern. This is a format. This is going to be the format for the Pro Tour, and then we're going to fire a bunch of Grand Prix off following it just to make sure that modern had like the critical mass of support that it did. And obviously, that worked out well. And then people continue to play modern, whereas, like, you know, Brawl, or if you somehow remember Extended way back in the day, um, Extended was a format where people cared about for one PTQ season, and then people just never played it again for the rest of the year. And then people would be oh, the extended season is going to roll around. What are we going to do now? Because no one knew about what the rotation was like either. So you, like, it mattered very, very little, and then it just stopped mattering. Um, so like, find out what works for you. If you're wanting to play Brawl, like, go for it. Uh, try and build like a community of people who want to play your store. But other than that, like, it's one of those like your mileage may vary. If you don't like Standard, don't play Standard. There's plenty, of, uh, there's plenty out there for you. Uh, try Brawl. I didn't care for Brawl, but that's because it never took off when I was at Kerwin's. So just find out what works for you. And if it doesn't, then, you know, try something else. So as I've explained, R&D is a completely different beast than what people think uh, happens. Uh, they generally have two years ahead of time of the product actually coming out to design it, come out with the artwork, have a art director, and then go through all the other stuff. Um, so the pros that started last year in 2017 and the pros that they announced this year, we're not going to actually see changes until 2019 at the earliest. Uh, so that's something you have to keep in mind because they have to have these sets um, way in advance they need their legal department to secure copyright, stuff like that. So you can't you can't think like, oh, well, players... The players thing took over a year ago. Like, where's the results? It takes them a little longer than a year to come out with the new products. Um, I do think Dominaria Forward, when um, Amonkhet rotates out and Kaladesh, is going to be a better format because they've had time to sort of break it apart after changing rotation on us multiple times. Um, so I, I'd be looking forward to that. I don't know if standard players are going to come back after seeing other formats like Commander or Modern. I mean... To me, those seem like much more fun formats, but for someone who doesn't have the budget necessarily, they may just want to stick with standard. Or if they like grinding a bunch, um, standard may be the format for them. Um, so I'd expect Dana to see changes in 2019 at the earliest and 2020 at the latest. Um, but I don't have 2020 vision, so we'll have to see what happens. Um, that's why I wear glasses. So thanks for the question, 
Dana. Uh, you can message us on Facebook at Cartel Aristocrats or on Twitter at Cartel underscore finance to claim your $25 gift certificate. Ed, are there any other viewer questions from Cool Stuff that you want to bang out before we get into Pick of the Week? Uh, I haven't read all of them yet, so... Classic Ed. I'll reply to them all. Hasn't even read viewer questions yet. Right. Sorry. This has been an information-packed episode, though. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about. Like, I think the summer, like, naturally just the slow months. I think in the next few weeks, like, there'll just be no shortage of things to talk about. We can talk about, like, you know, new predictions uh, once we have more spoilers, etc. Like, this is definitely, like, one of the more exciting times of the year, especially, like, headed into quarter four. Um, oh, we do have another good question. Oh, okay. And the guy that asked it is actually in our live chat, but he, he did leave it on cool stuff. Um, I'm going to speed run through this question. So brace yourself, Ed. Um, I've heard a lot of MTG finance content creators, specific podcasts talk about how Europe is a great opportunity since EDH is not popular there. So a lot of the staples are way cheaper. Things like paradox, paradox engine, mana crypts, chain veils, et cetera. I haven't seen a lot of people explain how to take advantage of this other than to fly to Europe and go to different LGSs. I have a family member who knows very little about magic flying to Europe in a couple of weeks. How do you recommend that I take advantage of this opportunity? Then he goes on to explain that he looked at Google Maps and there's a bunch of LGSs in the area, but they don't have good online stores for me to verify their inventory. Um, so how do people take advantage of Europe arbitrage? Well, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And then there wouldn't be arbitrage, but it's not. And just because someone on a podcast tells you that it's easy money doesn't mean that like you have the same connections they do or like, Ed and I can like just call up random European vendors and be like, hey, we want a stack of this next time you're in town in America. And they're like, okay. But, um, you know, a lot of the people that that uh, have podcasts like already have their, their hookup. They already like have people in place to take advantage of this. And then if they name the same cards that like get, it's not, I'm not saying it's a pump and dump, but like, I bought out Chainvale two years ago at $3 and I said it on the cast that I bought out every single copy of Chainvale under, I think it was $3 at the time. And then I talked about it on the cast because I wanted more people to be interested in Chainvale. Um, but if I talk about Paradox Engine uh, on the podcast and I'm like, yeah, that's a great pick and it's half as expensive in Europe. So like clearly you should go buy them in Europe. What I'm doing is introducing more demand all over the international market, which puts a constraint on supply and increases demand, um, which means that more people are going to be paying more for that specific card in the future. And um, there's less cheap copies flooding the market from overseas. So that's my take on it is like, we say this all the time on cartel, but like, we don't have a professional setup. We do this live. We do this for free. We eat the fees that it costs to host this place um, on like SoundCloud and stuff like that. We're not in it to try and make money off of you guys, or at least I'm not. Ed, Ed may think differently. Um, but like, you know, there's better polished podcasts out there that like talk about, oh, it's easy money if like you just need a European guy. But like not everyone can do that. And that's something a lot of people have to accept. So I don't know. I may sound entitled, which I know a lot of viewers give me crap for all the time. But like if arbitrage was such easy money, everybody would do it. So it does seem like the only way to answer your question is to either fly to Europe or fly to Japan, which Ed and I go on vacation to a lot, um, or uh, have someone over there to ship you cards. But arbitrage exists for a reason, and we're never going to have a perfect market in Magic, but if it was super easy, then we just wouldn't have that much arbitrage. So that's my statement. Ed, how do you feel about European arbitrage? Uh, one of the things that you have to note, like that's very, very different, is it's really... Not as easy as you think. Uh, mainly because so many people started doing this, the market has started to flatten. There's less good opportunities, mainly because once... I, I had a conversation in uh, Richmond this past weekend. Um, because no one was buying carts. He had all the time in the yeah. world to have this conversation. Right. With a few other vendors, I basically said that it's very, very hard to share like the very, very good arbitrage opportunities because once you tell someone that like, hey, this card's super cheap. You should go buy these cards. They basically, t like, it, it's like literally the equivalent of like this, like a little kid finding like his dad's gun. He's going to go around. He's going to like be running. He's going to be like, I will buy every copy of this. And then next thing you know, people catch on. 
like and then like they just erased any margin they could have made yes right so like i'm very very hesitant to like just give out like the like the easy ones like people know about right like the three cards you mentioned paradox engine man man crabs chain veils those are all obvious the ones that are hidden like i would prefer honestly for them to stay hidden mainly because it keeps the arbitrage market available and like i'm not so naive to think that there won't be a point when the market won't go away in the future but there's no reason to accelerate it by just doing this um yeah, let me pull up this document that Ed emailed to me last week. It says super secret arbitrage cards do not share. All right, Ed. So cards one through ten are uh right. Um the other problem with buying cards in Europe is you have to remember like Europe, there's a lot of different uh cultures and people. Um you're but if like the cards that you're gonna find on cheap, you're gonna find chain bales, but if you're gonna find them cheap, they're going to be like in like German, French, Spanish, Italian, etc. And like those are the kinds that like the number might look right. It might it might look good to be buying like chain wheel for like five euros, but no one is ever going to pay you any amount on like a Spanish chain bail. Um, like you might be able to find like some opportunities where people just want a chain bail on the cheap. They aren't willing to pay like the twenty dollars or whatever it is for a chain bail. And you can pro- like will you be able to sell for ten? Probably. Is it going to take you a while to do to find a buyer? Very likely. Was it worth your time? Probably not. Right. Uh, like if you're in Europe, like honestly, you're probably getting more equity by going out, like having like enjoying your vacation, like seeing what Europe has to offer, doing things. Um, mainly Wait, because life outside of magic, do go on. Right. Uh, like, like you do go to Grand Prix. Like most of the vendors are pretty, like fairly privy to like, like they know that there's like Americans, there's like. Japanese people, Chinese people, people from who to do own swords who come from far away to buy cards are included in the price. And again, most of the cheap opportunities have already like like people have already discovered them and basically killed that market. So um it's it's really not as easy as just like looking it up and trying to find that there's LGSs close by and just being able to walk in expecting to be able to buy cards that you're gonna turn for a profit easily. Great answer, Ed. Are you ready to get into pick of the week? Or I you want to talk about our awesome arbitrage plays from Europe? No. And then make it seem like we're, you know. No, pick of the week. Pick of the week. All right. My pick of the week is Jaya Ballard from Dominaria. Uh, this is a card that's looking more and more likely to see play with the introduction of the new Is It mechanic. Um, it allows you to discard cards and then cast them with its plus uh, to be able to get the full value out of discarding a card and exiling it from your uh, graveyard to take advantage of this. Uh, Jaya Ballard is currently $3.40 on the American market. I bought 75 copies this morning from the Japanese market at between 250 and 300 yen, which comes out to about 210 to like 260-ish, question mark. Um, We pay less. um, We pay less on our buy list, but I just want to put in a couple hundred dollars on this card, throw it in a box and forget about it until all of Guilds of Ravnica is spoiled. I think if they come out with one good card with that mechanic, um, it'll spike it and I can take advantage of the hype and sell into the hype um, and break even. So that's my pick of the week. Do not go out and buy all the Jaya Ballards on TCG, um, but it's just something where it seems low risk to throw a couple hundred bucks into it. And at worst case, I can maybe break even by listing off the hype. And this is the type of thing where um, I, I, I like this pick a lot, actually. I think it's been a pick before, mainly because it's like it's just a cheap planeswalker. And if you do if you do plan on playing standard, like it's gonna cost you fifteen dollars tops to go buy a set, right? Like this is a time where if you're looking to get a standard on cheap, like spend fifteen bucks, get out of the way. If it doesn't pan out, you're probably going to buy this and lose a little bit of money. If it does pan out, right, this card's gonna be like it won't surprise me if it's like ten, fifteen dollars. If it, if, it, if it becomes like a four of in a standard or a three of in a standard deck or something. Right. The other thing is many viewers have correctly pointed out in the past is that I have a retail out and not everyone has that opportunity. Yep. So keep that in mind. Yep. Uh, there are a few cards I want to talk about. Uh, the first card is uh, the cycle of uh, lands, uh, Woodland Cemetery, Sulphur Falls, etc. They were Dominator. They were rares. They, they're basically bottom out. Our buy list is like probably somewhere to yours. You probably pay like a dollar on them. Just across the board, uh, they sell reasonably well. They're, they've generally always been cheap. Um, like, 
even like in their time in standard, they weren't terribly expensive. You can buy like the Innistrad ones for like barely more than uh, the ones in Dominaria right now. But we see this trend where the the mana the uh, the mana base of yesterday becomes like the like the staples of tomorrow. Basically, uh, this happened like when uh, Keldesh came out or not came out, but when uh, when uh, Ixlon at some point, and when uh, the um, the Fastlands, Emmy Fastlands, like Blooming March Botanical Sanctum, they became they went from being three to four dollars. Um, Three to four dollars to like, like ten to twelve dollars on like spire bluff canals, like blue marshes, etc. Um, so like picking like if you don't own them, pick up the set now. Just get out of the way. Uh, the other card I really like is Jade Light Ranger. Uh, mainly, it's, it, I'm just looking at ways like how like how are we interacting with the graveyard? If there's anything that's just you called this last week. Yeah, I call it. Did I say Jade Light Ranger last week? Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess okay. Search for Scanta. Same idea. There's ways to dump cards in your graveyard. It's in blue. It's already a very powerful card. Um, feels like a reasonable like way to get in. It's obviously like a multi-format staple. If you don't own them already, I'd probably buy them now. They're not going to get much cheaper than they are. So, and it's just like these are types of things I would be targeting in like the next few weeks. And some of these like they're cheap enough that I'm willing to gamble on a bunch of copies. Um, even if it doesn't pan out, they probably won't get much cheaper than they already are. If they do pan out, it's nothing about upside. Anything else you want to add this week? Nope. All right. Well, you can find our podcast at Cartel Aristocrats on CoolStuffInc.com, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, on iTunes, and MTGCast.com. You can find us on Twitter at Cartel underscore Finance. You can find us um, on Facebook at Cartel Aristocrats, where for some reason Jim shares his articles, even though they don't do with the podcast. Um, you can find Ed at Ed113. He'll be behind the Tales of Adventure booth with our guest who came on. Um, Mike Caffrey, who owns Tales of Adventures, will also be there. Uh, Douglas Johnson, who is our former co-host, will be behind the 95 MTG booth. Um I will not be at Detroit, but I'll be at Hong Kong. I don't think I want a last minute to Detroit. Like, not worth my time. Um, I am looking forward to the Bitcoin bet being settled soon. Uh, this suit is currently being made. So I'm going to look real stupid for Jim's wedding. Uh, we did have people ask if we were going to GP Atlanta. That is the same weekend as Jim's wedding. So we won't be there. No, no, no. GP Atlanta is the weekend after. Oh, then I guess we will be at GP Atlanta. Yep. We're missing something for Jim's wedding. So... I'm holding your paintings hostage, so thanks for the free art. I guess if you're not coming to Detroit, that's cool. Oh, right. Yeah, you have my artwork. Well, yeah. uh, if you want artwork, just go mug to Ed in Detroit. Uh, well, so- no, I'm, I'm not bringing it to Detroit. <laughs> not, I didn't realize how much of a nightmare it is. I'll carry around original art. Don't do favors for Jeremy. Yeah, exactly. Um, thanks for listening, guys. We hope this was an entertaining cast. We definitely hit you with a lot of information. Uh, just uh, We appreciate you guys listening. As I mentioned, because people ask every week, we do this for free. So it's it's always nice to get some feedback. Uh, we had a lot of people ask questions this week on Cool Stuff Inc. We are able to give you better content the more questions you ask, even if you win all the time. It helps us shape discussion on issues we should be talking about. So we really appreciate that we had like two dozen people comment last week, especially with the amount of people that download this podcast. So uh, keep it up. Keep asking questions. And uh, say hi to Ed. And don't forget to get a selfie. That's all. Signing off. See you guys next week. And bye-bye. Thanks for listening.